0: As we noted last week we wanted to share two bonus episodes that help bridge from our season one conversation focusing on learning systems from the school perspective to focusing from the community perspective when families enroll their children in public school they're enrolling them in a system charged with supporting their learning through their teen years but there is no equivalent system called community schools engage the community both individuals and organizations in lots of ways sharing information creating trust making out-of-school time connections, even incorporating them into the school building and the school day. But how are these partners found, supported, connected to schools, and equally important to each other? Who better to ask than Catherine Plog martinez Catherine is more than the managing partner of KP Catalyst and the producer of the podcast series. She's been a leader in youth development field at the local level for the last decade that I've had a chance to connect with her on and off. And as we've been working more together over these past three years, I've come to recognize that, like me, she has a knack for helping illuminate big ideas in ways that can help communities take action. So I wanted to take some time for you to hear about her and how she's envisioned and acted on this work. So, Catherine, your work for many years has been at the intersection of positive youth development, out-of-school time, and K-12 education. And like our guests in season one, you have a ground-level vision of what it means for schools and communities to connect. So tell us more about what this looks like in Denver. As
1: you said, I have really danced between these different worlds, having spent time doing training and coaching and capacity building focused on positive youth development, having directly run after-school programs in school buildings, both as an employee of a community organization and then for the school district itself. I think when I think about what bringing together the world of community partners, community-based organizations and schools looks like, I am a systems person. I have friends that tease me because they're not systems people. But I really think that building the partnerships like we heard about in season one takes systems or a word that we've been using more that I've heard you use a lot of
0: infrastructure. You talked about this idea of infrastructure and I want you to just sort of pause and talk a little bit more about this need for infrastructure in order to get to system. So school systems are our school systems. I mean, they're perfectly nested. We have the district, and then we have our school clusters, and then we have schools, and then we have classrooms, and everybody understands how those fit together. But when we get out into this complex space that's often called community, it's sort of a free-for-all. And it's never really clear when we talk about school community partnerships, whether we're partnering with an individual program that happens to be next door, we're partnering with a citywide infrastructure, we're partnering with a cluster of branded programs like the Boys and Girls Clubs. Can you talk a little bit more about how, as we have these conversations, about Pushing the idea of school and community partnerships up to the system level about why this idea of intermediaries and that capacity to connect and get collaboration across all of these things, organized not by the school, but by some other entity. Why is that so important? So in Denver, we started with a really grassroots
1: collaboration, first largely just in the community space. So an organization called DQAC was formed. DQAC was the Denver Quality After School Connection. And it was a place where out-of-school time providers came together to talk about what they each had and how they shared resources and how their possibilities and people and places could be leveraged more fully across all of Denver. And what it really started to build in Denver was a collaborative versus competitive spirit for out-of-school time providers. And I start there and start the journey there because it was so critical to get to that point of collaboration to be then fully able to create an infrastructure that helped support greater partnership with the school district. And so, Denver, in the time that I was there, we were lucky enough to build the Denver After School Alliance, which is an out of school time intermediary. And I know that we've talked in other places about what an intermediary is, but the Denver After School Alliance really sought to help. After school programs and providers improve the quality of their services, have more line of sight into where they were and what they were doing to help get them more access to school district data. But then with my school hat on, it was also to help school leaders understand more fully what these partners were doing, how they could be part of the conversation. As we went from there, all of this was nested in Denver in a fo- what became a focus on the whole child. So when I was last with Denver Public Schools, we were focused on the Denver Plan 2020. And one of the five goals at the district level was on support for the whole child. And we recognized as a school district that that couldn't be something that the 13,000 employees of Denver Public Schools did alone, that we had to engage not just the out-of-school time providers, but health and mental health professionals the civic organizations in our community, the city government certainly was critically important to the work that we were doing.
0: Can you talk a little bit more about how, as we have these conversations about pushing the idea of school and community partnerships up to the system level, about why this idea of intermediaries and that capacity to connect and get collaboration across all of these things? organized not by the school, but by some other entity. Why is that so important? I'm actually going to start with tackling it from the school leader perspective. So as you said, we
1: talk a lot about partnering with community. But if I'm a school leader, it's likely that from 6 a.m. until sometimes 6 p.m., I don't sit down I don't go to my office, I'm in and out of classrooms, I'm putting out fires. And so if individual organizations, again, from the out-of-school time space, from these other sectors, are continually reaching out to that school leader, there's a chance that those hundred emails are really likely to get missed. But if instead you have something like an intermediary, like the Denver After School Alliance, who can speak with that unified voice and who can help organize the things that are going on underneath, it makes it easier to find those access points and entry points. Thinking on the reverse side of what it does for the community providers is it can really help give voice to the work that they're doing. It can help them think about how they can translate the language and information that they're using. It can help to professionalize the field. That's another term that you hear so frequently, but that can look like series of professional development, but it can also look like helping see and understand the value and impact community-based organizations play in the community. We saw that really clearly during the pandemic. Providers leaned in, they ran learning hubs, they were open for essential workers. When you have infrastructure, you can capture that story. So again, instead of 20 organizations having to write their unique story of what they did, you can pool those stories together pool the impact and tell the story of how we can influence the community.
0: When I got to know you, we were working together on the Wallace Foundation's Partnership for Social Emotional Learning Initiative, and we started to spend time talking about how you really could sort of leverage the fact that you have these systems, school and out-of-school systems, that were really trying to both work more and work more together on social emotional learning. Even with that intensive commitment to work together— and even with funding to work together, the partnering part was still hard. Why do you think that was? I think that question really takes us to
1: what Ralph talked about last week in terms of authentic demand. Early on in Paselli, we set out for schools and their out-of-school time provider to work together and connect. And we knew that focusing on social, emotional, cognitive skill development was a place of intersection. It was a place that our infrastructure for supporting community-based organizations had been focusing on. It was a place, as I mentioned, that the district was focusing on in our support for the whole child. But in Denver, and then as I stepped out of Denver and into supporting Paselli more broadly, we saw That the principals, the teachers, the district personnel, and the out-of-school time providers and the programs, while they were working towards a shared goal, they didn't yet have understanding of the role that other people could play in reaching them. So for me, that's where Ruff's framing of authentic demand comes in. If we all really want this same goal and we're truly committed to getting there, we have to take time to learn the ways in which each of us can contribute. And we have to be willing to step up and we have to be willing to step back to figure out the ways in which we can collectively move forward together and then more importantly, build forward together.
0: You know, when I think about what it takes to get everything that you just said, moving together and moving at scale. So we aren't just doing that in a happenstance way for some young people, but we're really investing in building that infrastructure. And a part of the challenge is that infrastructure really does have to be built up at that system level, but it also has to connect, it has to consistently connect all the way down so that everybody is getting the messaging that this is important. I'm going to take a a, A weird sidestep, I think. Just before I jumped on this call, uh, I was actually eating Girl Scout cookies. And I don't have the box in front of me, but as I was sitting there eating probably a couple too many Girl Scout cookies, um, thin mints to be exact, the box was just awash with what we would call social-emotional learning terms. It explained the kind of badges that young people, young girls would get um, as they're doing this. They're gonna get a STEM badge. They could get get an outdoor education badge. It talked about this particular idea of selling cookies as a part of an entrepreneurship effort that they want to make sure young people understand how to be entrepreneurs. And it then listed the specific skills that they were gonna get from time management to teamwork to business planning. All of these were on a box of cookies. And this is out there in the community. So when we talk about authentic demand and we think about the fact that we have organizations like the Girl Scouts, like Boys and Girls Clubs, like the Y, that are using very explicit language about what it is that they hope the kind of skills and competencies young people are building that are linking those very directly to these kind of adult-supported experiences that put young people out in their communities doing these things, that level of visibility and concreteness that doesn't seem to get pushback How do we bring that into this conversation? So I want to be a little bit controversial because I know at this point in time, this acronym SEL is getting controversy, but I don't think anybody is expressing controversy over all the words on the Girl Scout cookie box. So can you talk a little bit about what happens when we try to sort of formalize this stuff too much and we move it away from the language that parents and young people understand, which is a part of authentic demand. Everybody can understand they can be a part of that. And so, I mean, even amazing, as I get handed that box, it gives me a conversation starter with a young person right there on the box as I'm buying it. I can talk about what it is that young person is doing in that experience. So why is it that it's okay to have it on the box, but we end up having controversy when we move this up into a system conversation?
1: Really, really powerful piece to consider and i think you know i've always felt really strongly that we have to be impeccable with our language and with our words and i think this is a great example of it where when we boil it down to the heart of the content as you just did right the no- thinking about the fact that young women deserve the opportunity to enter the world with entrepreneurial skills i don't know how someone's going to argue with that just like they wouldn't argue with the notion that kids should be reading on grade level by third grade. Those things make sense. Where we get tripped up is in thinking about who does it, when do they do it, how do they do it, and why? So I point back a lot to recent data from Learning Heroes. There's a really great Venn diagram slide that shows what parents see as the role that home, school, and extracurricular out-of-school-time programs can play in building these, these skills and providing these opportunities for young people. And what parents really said in their survey response is that there are interconnected but distinct roles that everyone can play. And while sometimes we think, gosh, Shouldn't that be taught at home or shouldn't teachers be prioritizing math and shouldn't out of school time programs be about having fun or getting your homework done? The reality is whole kids show up everywhere they go. We heard that from I'm going to I'm going to jump back to season one again. Right. We heard that from Olivia in the power of a home base. The home base was where she was known as a whole person. Well, what if everywhere in a community was where young people were known as whole people? So when we start to take it up into an education system, things like social emotional learning often get intertwined with mental health. And who can have that responsibility for mental health? Curriculum has to be delivered by certain people under highly qualified requirements as part of No Child Left Behind and now ESSA. And it becomes really complex to think about how do you fit that into a day? And I've heard teachers talk about nothing is ever taken off their plates. It just gets bigger and bigger and bigger because we've decided that learning happens in the classroom. So when you talk about social emotional learning, we're pointed right to the classroom and it's something more that a teacher has to do. And so you asked earlier about what makes partnership hard. Part of what made a partnership around social emotional learning hard was we were thinking, teachers. That's where we do the learning. And we had to instead say, learning happens everywhere.
0: These skills for young people need to be developed everywhere. Absolutely. Let's let's take that idea, and you know that, and we will put it up on the website, that Learning Heroes Venn diagram that you described. I've taken to using that because it shows that parents both have an appreciation of these three big settings, home, school, and out-of-school time or expanded learning uh, programs. They understand that they have overlapping but differentiated ways that they, things that they do. They expect schools to do more about You know, basic reading and math and problem solving. And they expect out of school programs and expanded learning to do more things around, you know, teamwork and entrepreneurship and things like that. And they expect home to be the place where you learn self respect. So they understood different skills on that Girl Scout box are built in different systems. But in some ways, having that graphic and talking about these are what this is what happens in school, in home, in community programs makes it still feel like we have to think about these things happening separately. And if we put different words on those, the things associated with school are really the things, as you said, that are associated with formal curriculum-driven instruction, where I've got a set amount of content to get delivered in a set amount of time, and there's going to be some kind of assessment at the end to make sure it happened the things in that out-of-school expanded learning space are really associated with more flexible places where learning happens, where you've got different kinds of adults who have more flexibility to develop activities, usually group activities that young people can do together. They get to pick things they're interested in. They've got much more flexibility to do it. That's much more opportunity for you to think about teamwork and entrepreneurship and creativity because of that way that setting is set up. And then home, we could talk about it as free choice places if we wanted to alliterate, but that's really the place home, but also places where you go individually, like a library, are places where it's really up to you or you and your parents individually to decide what to do and when to do it. And we can think of those as that's what happens in school, in youth organizations, in at home, Or we can think about all of those kind of places being inside this thing that we call school, or at least associated with the school campus. And so I think as we're talking about this authentic demand conversation, a part of it really has to be authentic demand by lifting up the roles that are played beyond teacher. That takes us right back to where you began, highlighting the importance of giving community providers collective visibility and voice. I'm reminded of a statement made by a Tulsa school leader who had a similar position to the one you held in Denver until recently. After several years of closely working with out-of-school time partner to create better and more aligned strategies for social skill building, she noted that one of her most important and somewhat painful takeaways from the work was the realization that in some ways, not considering out-of-school time providers professionals was actually causing harm and limiting collaboration. So to close us out, I want to turn our attention briefly to season two, which seeks to lift up so many of the things we talked about today. I'd love to give folks a bit of a sneak peek of what is coming. Our
1: original plan for the second season was to simply switch perspectives, interview local, state, network entrepreneurs who have built and scaled vibrant local learning opportunities by activating community partners. But then we talked with Margarita the incredible young graduate from one of the EL education high schools who agreed to be co-host and co-creator of the next season. We started by asking her to do an even deeper dive into the story about the adults in school and in community, who helped her and her family navigate and leverage the educational supports and opportunities in Portland, Maine. In the years between when she arrived in the last semester of eighth grade as an immigrant to her graduation as valedictorian with a full scholarship to Colgate, to her return home to community after one semester to continue her education closer to family and her roots. Margarita's story is a powerful example of what happens when there is perfect alignment between what is offered, what is needed, and what is fully leveraged. Every adult stepped up, went the extra mile, stayed connected, We hit the trifecta if we were looking to publish a perfect beating the odds story, but we weren't. So we asked Margarita, did these staff go the extra mile for other young people you knew? For every young person in their program? Why do you think you were able to have this network of supportive adults? Luck? Because of something you brought to the table? Systemic commitments? To her credit, Margarita wasn't sure. She acknowledged that she and her family were ready for support. They leveraged everything that came their way. Others, she noted, left opportunities on the table. She wasn't sure whether the excellent support she received was because of her readiness
0: or because of the staff and program's resolve. So, after listening to Margarita, we changed our approach. In the coming season, we'll take you on a journey to Portland, Maine, to hear more about Margarita's story and to hear directly from the adults who made a difference in her life and we'll ask them to tell us more about how they connected with each other, what sparked their ability to support and inspire Margarita, and how much they believe their community has the infrastructure to ensure the people, places, and possibilities to change the odds, rather than just allowing some young people to beat the odds. We are incredibly excited for this upcoming season because we believe that bringing Margarita's story to life will help all of us experience what authentic demand for community engagement can look like. My conversation with Catherine, like Margarita's story in the coming season, highlights the importance of creating systems and infrastructure that support the adults working with young people and enhance the possibilities a community can offer. I ask you to consider it from your own perspective. In your community, are the adults making a difference for young people risk-takers? Doing things for a few young people that break or bend the rules? Are they rule followers? Doing things that their organizations expected them to do or rewarded them for doing? Are they lone wolves, acting alone without knowledge of whether there are others providing support, or are they a part of a pack, part of an informal or formal network of staff and volunteers in other systems? I'd love to hear your thoughts now and throughout the next season. Season two of the Changing the Odds Remix podcast is coming in
1: late April. Until then, visit changingtheoddsremix.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram to catch up on Season 1 and access all of our Remix content.